today you will be with me in paradise. Our gospel reading closed with the wonderfully clear voice of the gospel proclaimed to the dying criminal who hung to one side of Jesus. They would both be dead before evening. Yet for this man, death was the door to paradise. Arthur Jess observes, This evildoer on the brink of death and hell is the first to be converted by Jesus' announcement that sin is forgiven by virtue of the cross. He is the first to embrace Jesus as the one who saves others, the Christ and the King of the Jews. Close quote. Dying in his sin, dying for his sin, he rebukes the other. Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, this in contrast to Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He knew exactly what he had done. But he also knew, he sensed, the innocence of the one who hung between them. Prompted by the Spirit, he affirms the divinity of Jesus. He is the Christ. A rebuke, a confession, followed by a request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He is the king over not just the Jews, but over all creation. The confession of the penitent criminal. There are numerous other confessions that appear in our text. The rulers. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, perhaps less of a confession, more of a taunt. A provisional confession. Go ahead and prove it. They had heard about Jairus' daughter up in Jerusalem. Closer to home, they may have even seen the resurrected Lazarus. He'd saved others, but could he do the big one? Could he save himself? Prove it, and we'll believe. Prove it again today, when it's your blood spilling out on the ground. Lest we scoff at these rulers of the nation, we do well to recognize the same sort of testing occurs in our world today. In 2006, the St. Petersburg Times reported the death of a Ukrainian man who was mauled to death by a lion in the Kiev Zoo. He encountered the animal on purpose, believing that God would protect him. The zoo official said that the man lowered himself into the concrete enclosure holding four lions with a rope, shouting, God will save me if he exists. The man got to the bottom. He took off his shoes. Why? I have no idea started walking towards the animals. One of the lionesses came to meet him. She knocked him down and quickly severed his artery. No modern-day Daniels here, I don't presume. But how many of us are like Luther in the middle of a thunderstorm? Saint Anne, help me and I will be a monk. Help my son or my daughter and I will praise you. Let the pink slip pass me by and I'll bring in the full tithe. Get me home safely tonight and I'll be in church on Sunday. Do you hear the ring of today? It's our time and not God's time. Time pressed hard on the unrepentant criminal. He didn't ask, as the rulers had done, if you are. No, time was too short for reasoned inquiry. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's what the Christ was supposed to do, after all, right? He was supposed to march in and save the nation, throw out the Romans who had just nailed him to a cross. It's a desperate cry filled with scorn. David Schmidt comments, 
When someone being crucified looks upon you with scorn, you can't get much lower than that. This was the man's confession. Not tomorrow. Today! The urgency of the rulers today shifts from a demand for a sign to a plea for survival. The messianic expectations for the nation reduced to the personal pain for life. No theology, no theory. The terror and the torment of crucifixion were too overwhelming for anything else. The soldiers as well, as well had a confession. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Again, it's today. Save yourself today. Tomorrow will be too late. Even a few hours will be fatal. Their intention was to mock him like the rulers had done, to heap scorn upon him like the other criminal. Their mockeries echoed in the official charge over his head. The king of the Jews, this one. Romans meant to dehumanize Jesus, to demoralize the nation. Yet it is the irony of the scene that captures our attention. It is precisely here, on the cross, that Christ reigns. There is one more confession that we have not yet named, a silent confession. And the people stood by watching. What do we make of their confession, their presence here at this place of execution? Were they thrill seekers taking in a spectacle? Were they silent because they were powerless to stop or even to intervene? Whatever the reason, it was a weak confession. We, on the other hand, know the drama that is transpiring. God's own son is being executed for my sins, for your sins. And yet we, like these people, often offer a rather weak confession. I was going to share with you a parody from the traditional public confession found in the Book of Common Prayer that began, Beloved, benevolent, and easygoing parent, we have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment. Instead, I'll point you to the hymn writer. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Today, we are called to make a true confession, not the challenge of the rulers, not the scorn of the criminal, not the mockery of the soldier, or the silence of the crowd. Instead, we return to the confession of the penitent criminal. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What lesson would this dying man give to us? Sola gratia, grace alone. There's no altar call here at the place called the skull. We hear no testimony, either for the edification of those gathered or the assurance of the speaker's sincerity. There's no sinner's prayer that crosses the lips binding him to his Savior. There's no works, neither for penance or for sanctification. How could he? His hands and his feet are pinned to the cross with coarse iron nails. He hangs helpless. There is literally nothing he could do. And in his helplessness, he is the accurate picture of all humanity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3. Remember me is all he can ask. You are God, I'm not. Only then does he hear, only then do we hear those glorious words, today 
You will be with me in paradise. You are forgiven. You are saved today and for all eternity. Grace alone. Yet in this scene, there's the danger of a kind of sacramental reductionism. Today, the penitent criminal was ushered into heaven without the water of baptism dripping down his forehead. He has become the proof text that baptism does not work salvation. This guy was saved. We have Jesus' own word to that effect. Therefore, baptism does not work salvation. But remember, he had no opportunity. He could not come down off the cross. That's exactly what his fellow criminal demanded of Jesus. The bigger question would be, if he had come down, would he refuse baptism? Recall the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip there in the chariot. After instructions, there comes the excited question, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Don't tie God's hands because he saved this man. Instead, open your hands and your hearts and receive the blessing. Luther in the small catechism asks, What benefits do baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. Baptism saves us, but unbaptism does not condemn us. Only unbelief condemns. By faith we receive what God gives us in our baptism. His name, you are mine, he says. He declares through the resurrection of his son and the power of his spirit. Actually, though, there is a baptism here. If we read Paul carefully in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Today, for this man, he literally was crucified with Christ unto death. And the old Adam was drowned that a new man might emerge and arise and live before God in righteousness and purity forever in paradise. The urgency of today looks forward to the last day. Certainly appropriate as we observe the last Sunday of the church year. On that day, we will all stand before the king. And many, as the first criminal, will demand salvation. The five foolish virgins in Jesus' parable of Matthew 25. Lord, Lord, open to us. Yet they, along with all the unrepentant, will hear those chilling words. I do not know you. They will be shut out of paradise consigned to eternal destruction with the devil and his angels. But for those who confess their sins along with the repentant criminal and the wise virgins, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. Until that day, we do well to return to our baptism, that the old Adam might by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sin and evil desires as the catechism teaches. For even the baptized, the redeemed, remain sinners. St. John reminds us, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Luther makes a very practical assessment of this saint and sinner duality. Commenting on Romans 7, he wrote, Sin remains in the spiritual man for the exercise of grace, the humbling of pride, and the repression of presumption. For he who is not busily at work driving out sin, without doubt has sinned by the very fact of this neglect. We're not called to idleness. Close quote. Lee Strobel gives this account of a baptismal service during which he, he asked the baptismal candidates to take a piece of paper 
and write down a few of the sins that they had committed. These confessions were then folded up, and the candidates came up to be baptized. They were to pin them to a large wooden cross that stood before the font. Actually, this imagery comes straight out of Colossians chapter 2, just after our epistle reading, where Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The Greek word behind our translation, record of debt, fits. It means literally a handwritten document. The very sins that I committed by my hand. But to return to Pastor Strobel's narrative, he invites us to listen to what one woman experienced. I remember my fear, she writes. In fact, it was the most fear I remember in my life. I wrote as tiny as I could on that piece of paper the word abortion. I was so scared that someone would open the paper and read it and find out it was me. I wanted to get up and walk out of the auditorium during the service. The guilt and the fear were so strong. When my turn came, I walked toward the cross and I pinned that paper. I was directed to a pastor to be baptized. He looked me straight in the eye. And I thought for sure that he was going to read this terrible secret I had kept from everybody for so long. But instead, I felt like God was telling me, I love you. You've been forgiven. I felt so much love for me, a terrible sinner. It's the first time that I ever really felt forgiveness and unconditional love. It was unbelievable, indescribable. Whatever your secret sin is, it is nailed to the cross of Christ. He died for that sin as well. Today, that guilt is removed. Today, that debt is paid. Today, Satan has been defeated. Hear again the words of Jesus. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.